Let us pray. Lord, open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you say to us today. Amen. Our first New Testament reading this morning comes to us from the book of Romans, chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. In this passage, the Apostle Paul is teaching us what Christian love is all about. Listen now to God's word for you and for me. Let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading today is a gospel reading from the gospel of Matthew, verses 21 through 28, a very, very familiar passage, one that is always good for us to hear. Listen now for God's word to you and to me. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of the Lord. In case you missed it, I'm not sure how you can, a new era of CEO and corporate activism is in full swing. One could argue this new era of corporate activism began in 2014 or so, when Apple CEO Tim Cook publicly supported gay rights, and then CEO Howard Schultz of Starbucks wrote an open letter about race. The trend continued when The CEOs of Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A dipped their feet into the political waters, and Nike CEO Mark Parker decided to feature ads with controversial football player Colin Kaepernick. This new wave of corporate activism has only intensified with growing corporate support of Black Lives Matter and brands like Goya and WWE openly supporting our president. Corporate leaders who have historically stayed silent on politics and policy, are speaking out. Their statements, to be fair, are directed primarily at consumers, to be sure, but they are also intended to be heard by their employees, and the results, as we know from experience, have been really mixed. Levi Strauss CEO Chip Berg anticipated impassioned responses when he made a donation of $1 million towards preventing gun violence. I knew, he writes, I knew I was going to get a lot of hate mail. I knew I was going to get threats. I knew my family was going to get threats. And all of that has happened. But somebody's got to have the courage to step up and say something needs to be done. Some angry emails Berg received came from his own employees who interpreted the donation as hostile towards gun ownership. Berg, an Army veteran, says it was not. He also received support from employees whose children were caught up in lockdowns at local schools. Either way, Berg has no regrets. In today's hyper-partisan, caustic environment, Berg believes employees want to know where their leaders stand, and strong values, strong principles are increasingly part of what workers look for in their employer. This growing trend, whether you like it or not, indicates that CEOs and corporations are coming to terms with the fact that as we become more polarized as a society, it's really getting difficult to occupy the middle ground on any issue without being drawn into the fight. Churches, of course, are finding the same thing to be true. As our civil and religious discourse becomes more caustic and partisan, churches and their parishioners and their pastors are struggling with how much of their political selves they should bring into church and how much of their Christian identity they should take out into the public sphere. 
Christians of every tradition are trying to figure out the right relationship between their identity as disciples and of citizens. Tim Keller, the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, has seen this play out in his own congregation as he watches members struggle with loving and serving and caring for those with whom they disagree strongly on issues of faith, policy, and practice. What should the role of Christians in politics be, Keller writes? More people than ever are asking that question. Christians cannot pretend they can transcend politics and simply preach the gospel. He writes, those who avoid all political discussions and engagement are essentially casting a vote for the social status quo. American churches in the early 19th century that did not speak out against slavery because that was what we would now call getting political were actually supporting slavery by doing so. He ends with, to not be political is to be political. Now, when pastors of any tradition make this claim that politics and faith really can't be separated, they often hear, I often hear, about the separation of church and state, the foundational concept embedded in the First Amendment. And I get it. But it's important to remember that the separation of church and state was meant to protect the church from the state, not the state from the church. The First Amendment does not prohibit Christians from being involved in the functioning of the state. Our religion can be freely exercised, which is a very good thing because it's nearly impossible to follow Christ's commands, to love the poor, to care for the widows and orphans, to love our enemies, and to be stewards of God's creation without somewhat being drawn into politics. So how do we do it? How do we be political and faithful? What is more important to us as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling? Is it our private piety and beliefs or our public politics and practice? What is more essential in a life of discipleship? Is it our personal relationship with Jesus or our relationship with the world God so loves? What should pastors like me talk about from the pulpit? And what should strictly be off limits? These are all really good questions. And they are questions I believe today's passage from the Gospel of Matthew helps us answer. The setting for today's lesson follows Peter's proclamation that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the one. A claim that inspires Jesus in the moment to call Peter the rock on which God would build up the church. This is a high water moment for Peter, a moment that has him feeling really, really good. So good that he feels emboldened, empowered to offer Jesus, his Lord and Savior, a little friendly correction. Immediately after praising Peter for his faith in him, Jesus starts talking about his need of suffering and dying in rising again. Shocked by Jesus' dark and frankly depressing words, Peter reminds Jesus, he pulls him aside and reminds him that he is blessed by God, which means a life of suffering and death need not be in the cards for him, and if possible, hopefully not his followers as well. 
But as quickly as Peter is lifted up by Christ, Jesus has no trouble putting him back down with this swift and startling rebuke. Get behind me, Satan. I kind of feel bad for Peter here. He's only trying to find a way to avoid the path that Jesus has set before him. And who can blame him, really? It's only human to want to be above the ordinary, to want to avoid suffering, to want to be on the winning side. But as we were reminded when Jesus faced these same temptations in the desert in his confrontation with the devil, avoiding suffering and struggle simply is not the way of Christ. The devil may want to lift us up away from the realities of life, away from others, but God wants us to go back down, to lead us down into the muck and the mess and the absolute beauty that is human existence. Discipleship doesn't draw us away from confusion and conflict. It draws us down into it to offer a word of hope and love and peace. A few years ago, Fred Gazer, an Old Testament scholar at Luther Theological Seminary, did an informal survey of sorts of church mission statements. He looked up at websites to see what churches were saying about themselves, and what he found there astonished him. Churches generally describe their missions in terms of being warm and welcoming. That's a good thing. They wrote of their commitment to serve Jesus by serving others. Another good thing. They described their education programs, their fellowship, and their worship, and they often declared themselves to be committed to inspiring preaching and teaching. But not a single church website mentioned the call to suffer in Jesus' name. All the mission statements lifted people up while Christ invites us to follow him down. If any want to become my followers, he says, let them deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who want to lose their life for my sake, they'll find it. This is the path of discipleship. And within these three commands to deny, pick up, and follow, I think we are given clues, hints, on how our private personal faith needs to relate with our public political life. The first clue lies in the command to deny yourself. To deny oneself, to literally turn away from oneself, is to put yourself, I think, in a proper relationship with Jesus. It's a reorientation, not in front of Jesus, not even beside Jesus, but behind him, following him wherever he may go. When Peter refuses to accept the claim that Jesus is to be a suffering Messiah, Jesus tells him to get back behind him. As such, there's this deeply private and personal aspect to denial of self. For it requires us to set aside time in our prayer life to reflect on what in our lives we have yet to subject to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is much of the work of meditation in prayer, an honest accounting of where we are not yet following Christ. 
to deny oneself is a very personal, private thing. And yet, this, this call to turn away from oneself also has a very public quality to it. The only way we can possibly love others in the climate we find ourselves in, the only way we can love people as Christ commands us to love is to be humble and curious and open, not self-confident, self-righteous, and closed off. In an increasingly partisan world, we have come to see our politics as a way to lift ourselves up, to save ourselves, when our faith demands that our politics are seen as a tangible way to show the love and mercy of God to all people. The second clue on how our private personal faith should relate with our public communal life is in the second command to pick up our cross. Traditionally, the church has taken a passive view, a passive understanding of this command. To pick up one's cross for much of church history has meant to bear one's unique troubles. Whatever lot you have been given, it is yours alone to carry. We all have a special trouble and we can't run from it as fast as we try. We have to, at some level, accept our life, our person, our situation, as it is. We have to be honest before we can follow. Now, while this viewpoint has empowered people of faith to face their addictions, to come to terms with their limitations, and to own the consequences of their choices, this passive view has also been used to justify injustice by arguing that whatever struggle you have, it's a struggle given to you by God. If you're a slave, that's your lot. If you're poor, do the best you can. This line of reasoning is one reason the active view, a more active view of this command has begun to gain greater consideration in theological circles. In the active view of the command to pick up one's cross, there's this idea of being countercultural, this idea of being a political pacifist, this idea of being a nonviolent, humble disciple of Christ, which right now would look like a salmon swimming upstream. To pick up your cross and carry it means letting your actions speak to the vitality and vibrancy of your faith. Now, it's my interpretation that for much of church history, churches have swung from one extreme to the other in their interpretation of these two commands, either making them all about a public witness or all about personal salvation. But I think it's time for us to step away from this dualistic viewpoint, this dualistic mindset, and acknowledge that it's not either or, it is both and. These two commands to deny oneself and to pick up your cross remind us that Jesus wants it all. Jesus wants our private piety and our public life. He wants our religious identity and our political one as well. He wants whatever we think is going to save us. We are his, and we follow him not just in the realms of prayer, worship, and devotion. We follow him in the ballot box, the public sphere, and the corporate boardroom. To be God's social justice warrior, you have to have a personal relationship with Christ. And to have an evangelical heart, you have to care about the world. 
any attempt to prioritize one aspect of our faith over and against another aspect leads to us losing our life, not finding it. I think we are all a lot more like Peter, myself included, than we like to admit. We all want to hedge our bets to keep our options open. We think, as Peter does, that there might just be another way, an easier way, a better way to find the life we want. Surely there's a way to security and to peace and to happiness that doesn't involve us losing our lives, giving it all over to Jesus. Thankfully, Christ loves us enough to speak a hard word to us and to Peter by reminding us that every faithful follower who gets it, like Peter, can quickly lose their way when they, when we, live as if there are other ways to life than the way Christ puts before us. Deny yourself in private and in public, he says. Pick up your cross in private and in public and follow me in private and in public. Our life is in Christ's hands, all of it, the religious and the political, the private and the public. They both need to be held up to the teachings of Jesus. They both need to be subject, made subject to his will, his grace. It saddens me how much politics has become about salvation and separation instead of about compassion and sacrifice. Because I believe if we find the courage as people, as a community, as a nation to, to give it all up, to lay it all before Christ, before God, if we discard this imaginary line between our private faith and our public life, I believe we will discover the wonderfully good news that evangelical proclamation and social justice are two sides of the same coin. Partisanship has absolutely no place in church life because partisanship claims that only one party, one idea, one platform can save us. But being political, being concerned about the world, being a person of faith in the public sphere, as messy as that can be at times, all that is essential to a life of faith because it's a natural consequence of an active and vibrant relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Humility before Christ, I believe, gives us humility before others, which transforms politics from a dirty word into a shared platform where we can express God's love. Politics, after all, is simply what love's look, love looks like in the public sphere. And love is what claims us, love is what sustains us, and love is what causes us to follow Christ to the cross and in time to the empty tomb. Prayer and protest, worship and service, devotion and generosity, holiness and mercy, conviction and compassion. Jesus wants it all. Alleluia and amen.